Hello, and welcome once again to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as is invariably the case, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you today from the Rene Belloc Center for Archaeological Ethics here on the beautiful Hoople campus. As we approach the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, the problem of the tomb's discoverer, Howard Carter, is back in the news. Reports that Carter pilfered items from the tomb have circulated for decades, but have never really penetrated the public's consciousness, or, for that matter, academia's. Does it matter? Everybody was doing it back then. Well, lots of people were, to reward patrons and friends. Or is the problem that he lied about the discovery to cover up the heist? How do the ethics of past archaeologists, or lack thereof, shape discussions today? What are our ethics anyway? And where can I get one of those golden carnelian necklaces? My wife has a birthday coming up. Okay. Um, okay. So before, before the lightning round, I, I feel, I feel, um, honor bound to give a shout out to, to our listener, our listener in the OC who, <laughs> who, who sent us, um, a very kind and thoughtful letter this, uh, this past week, which, uh, which makes me think that we should do a, you know, a, a dip into the old mailbag episode one of these days. So I encourage our listener. And any other potential listener that we don't know about. <laughs> people that they meet in the street to, to send those cards and letters in and ask us questions. What would you like to know from us about us? What's our email address? Um, <laughs> this week in the ancient Near East, all one word, at gmail.com. There you go. We're easy to find. So, so yeah, thanks. It's cool. Unlike all the artifacts from Tut's tomb. <laughs> Those are cool too. I'll jump um, ahead. But many are not so easy to find. <laughs> or some, not many. All right, let's 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 stay in, in order here. Yeah. <laughs> and let's let's go Don't to the ahead. let's go to the lightning round. Um, I have a I have a lightning round. I have a couple of ideas. But let's go with the most memorable thing that you've ever stolen. Oh, oh I have a great one. Okay. Okay. I you you go first. All right. I had sticky fingers periodically in my youth. And one time I stole a copy of the Pentagon Papers. <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a, that, how is that a, a little meta gesture for a 13 year old <laughs> that's, that's good <laughs> far far more telling than i think you you realize <laughs> or, or perhaps you do realize <laughs> interesting 
Yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> um, wasn't there this? What was it? Abby Hoffman wrote uh, "Steal yeah, This Book." Steal this book. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't steal that book. <laughs> <laughs> it was the next book on the on the re- revolving bookshelf at? Yes, uh, so right, exactly. Okay, very good. Yeah, um, I didn't really steal. So. <laughs> you stole Alex's heart. Maybe. Oh, you know, you just walked all over my answer. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My, I have it literally written here. My wife's heart and she, hers, mine. Very nice. Oh, Very nice. oh I feel awful now. I. The I only thing I in the corner. Yeah. The <laughs> only thing I've ever stolen is uh, with a toddler in the supermarket basket um, holding a bun, a, a roll to, to keep him happy uh, while we go around the supermarket. And then he finishes it before we get to the checkout line. So I don't pay for it. That's the only thing. Yeah, they're I- still looking for you. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly. sure. I've yeah, seen yeah. you in the post office. <laughs> okay. Huh. Oh, you did yours, Alex, right? Yes, yes. Very oh, good. no, very he nice. did mine. But <laughs> well, thank you for that. Well, we try to cross cross boundaries and borders. <laughs> that's that's very true. Um, but I guess that brings us to the crux of the biscuit. Why I've asked you all here today, and um, that is on the very nearly one hundredth anniversary of the discovery of King Tutankhamun's tomb, the boy king, um, cut down bef- before his time. Um, another series of articles and books have come out or are coming out, which recount the sticky fingers, apparently, of the the tomb's discoverer, Howard Carter. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Who who seems to have um, uh, made off with uh, a number of uh, items from the tomb. And fudged his, being a technical description, fudged the description of his discovery of the tomb uh, for his to make himself look look good, or or, or to to cloak his nefarious to cloak his nefarious um, uh, underhanded activities. Yeah, and um, so I say to the panel, "What's up with that?" <laughs> <laughs> well, Carter, you know. Carter is certainly not looking good after after all these articles. Um, and uh, there's a couple of, of interesting angles to this, one of which is a lot of this information was already published uh, in in a in a general kind of way in 2010. Yeah. So in one regard, none of this is new. And I think, Alex, before we got started, you sort of asked an interesting question. Why? Why did no one pay attention to that? I mean, is it just because, I mean, obviously it's a big thing now because the hundred anniversary of the discovery right. of, the, of the tomb, but why in 2010 did, um, did this not make a much bigger splash, at least in archeology span circles? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And, and, and in, in, and in 1970, when Thomas Hoving of the, uh, I think he was then the director of the Metropolitan Museum yeah. of Art, wrote a book in which some of these kinds of shenanigans were were discussed as well. Maybe, maybe the uh, the it's a sign of the zeitgeist yes. <laughs> that uh, that 
you know, shenanigans are <laughs> shenanigans are everywhere these days, and we're much more attuned to shenanigans and unforgiving of shenanigans. I think well, that's exactly it. I think in the seventies, uh, the archaeological community was just beginning to become aware of of the sort of issue and larger issues and repatriation issues in general, and uh, and it really wasn't going to be a news story in the seventies, and it maybe should have been a news story in 2010. And that's an interesting question. Why nobody, nobody right. seemed to care until now. Yeah. I think about 1970, that was pretty antediluvian in, in the way everybody thought. Yeah. And certainly in the way museums behaved because they were right. still acquiring things that were, you know, clearly illicit. So, exactly. so Hoving was way ahead of the curve right. and, and, and that, you know, he really never got any recognition for that, but 2010 is, is pretty recent. And certainly the zeitgeist in 2010 was, you know, um, these kinds of activities were were uh, not well regarded. So right. why and, and that is when the Metropolitan Museum, when in 2010, they realized they had these 19 objects, we'll come back to this, from King Tut's tomb, and uh, they returned them to Egypt. So, so in that sense, 2010 made an impact in the archaeological community, but it didn't really it, it didn't really capture the public public attention like all of these articles that are appearing in newspapers all over are 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 capturing our attention now right. and that i guess is purely because it's the 100th anniversary right well but also do you think the zeitgeist now is is much more unforgiving oh yeah of, of oh yeah predecessors and their and their shenanigans large and small yeah, uh, yeah. And we were sort of in an iconoclastic turn. Um, that would well, be my, a for a band. The, the iconoclastic turn? Yeah. It's good. <laughs> nice. uh, I saw them yeah. open for the Buzzcocks one time. <laughs> um, but are we... Well, I have I have questions. Oh, questions. <laughs> well, fire away, my young... Um, are we... Are we surprised by any of this, or should we be surprised by any of this? No, because the whole history of archaeology, from its you know quasi scientific origins in the 19th century, was all about shenanigans and um, large, large and small, ranging from you know the pitched battles on the banks of the Nile between French run and British run gangs who had just looted you know, enormous sites and we're dragging stuff down to the barges um, to sticky fingered yeah. folks in the 20th century who were saying like, Oh, that's nice. <laughs> My wife would right. like that. Right. And obviously museums play a huge role in all of this. So no, we shouldn't be surprised at shouldn't all. Shouldn't be surprised. I think what, what is surprising is of all, of all names of archeologists that the public knows, if they're going to know any name, they're going to know Howard Carter because King Tut's tomb has always been such a big deal. Um, and I think, I, I think the the um, I don't know if I should say magnitude of what he did. It's probably not in in the grand scheme of things. We can decide if this is gigantic or medium or whatever. But uh, but he's a name that is known, and that he wasn't a pristine um, player. But is anybody pristine? Well, no. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let he who is without sin cast the first. Um, artifact, <laughs> you you might say, mm. and uh, you know, archaeology, archaeology is intrinsically sinful. <laughs> you might say because it's um, explicitly destructive. Well, exactly. 
So right. you're you have to destroy to learn. <laughs> we had to burn the village <laughs> to save it. Right. <laughs> it's the, it's almost the same logic. Um, so, well, so, the, the alternative view is at least vis-a-vis -vis development, you know, if you find all this stuff, what are you going to do with it? Are you, you know, really most societies don't have the stomach to just plow through it. I mean, we sort of do in our own way, but um, so I think that, you know, in, in that regard, archaeology serves a real purpose. Um, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Ooh, Professor Dessel with an existentially hopeful statement. <laughs> every, every day he rethinks his his personal <laughs> philosophy and decides he he will persist as an archaeologist. <laughs> well, I persist whether as an archaeologist or not is up for grabs. Well, I'm yeah. not sure people realize that archaeology is destruction. This is actually what I tell my my intro to archaeology class all, all the time. All destruction. It's all destruction, right? You you have to dismantle the whatever it is structure to to understand it and then it's never it's just not there anymore it's never the same again and that's really. why archaeological right. recording and photography is so important so, that, so let's get back to carter because oh, what good. carter is being accused of yeah. in this uh, soon to be published book on the anniversary of his discovery of tut's tomb is that he uh went into the tomb possibly before he admitted to going into the tomb and that and or he he and his team went into the tomb and sort of <laughs> rifled through everything and made a big commotion right. and then right. came out and resealed it because he they weren't supposed to go in uh, alone, unauthorized by any um, representatives of the Egyptian Antiquity Service. And so um, so there is a lot of questions being raised about his reportage of what the tomb looked like when he entered it. He, right. he reported that there was a lot of chaos and that things were all over the place and that had, that the tomb had been entered, looted, looted and enter, entered and looted at least once, if not several times in antiquity, and that this is what he found. But now some archaeologists, people in the know, are suggesting that he, he was the one right, who left right. the big mess. And I think that's just fascinating, actually, that he now that this has all come to light in such a big way that he he blamed he blamed ancient tomb robbers um, on the thing that he did. I mean, that's pretty audacious to blame ancient people who can't defend themselves because, you know, they've been dead for a couple of thousand years. Howard the audacious. <laughs> that's what they called him down the pub. <laughs> oh, that's just Howard being audacious again. I do like there is that one. There is that. uh one reference in in the in the Der Spiegel article from 2010 that um that is that um what is it here uh who, oh I don't have who said it mm -hmm. but um some scholar maybe it was Hoving I think it was Hoving uh, yeah it is uh, Carter was stubborn and hot tempered few people around him. Could, uh, few, few people could be around him for an extended period of time without being driven up the wall. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, okay, I but in, was... in fairness, we can say that about many, many archaeologists. Yes, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, but most of the people that we know don't steal. Don't <laughs> <laughs> right. They, they, they don't, and they don't, they don't lie, you know, extravagantly to cover up, to cover up theft. But yeah, my question, but oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, I'm not obviously. I'm not going to mention any names, but there are a couple people 
who were still around at the end of the last millennium mm-hmm. who had a, had a few sticky fingers and uh used to try to pedal pedal things uh right yeah. well that's well, yeah that's part of that's always been part of the political economy of archaeology and that's the people need to know um <laughs> and you know what what's interesting to the extent that any of this is interesting <laughs> is that <laughs> you know so like in the in the 20s and 30s yeah okay you could pocket some stuff or a lot of stuff yeah but by the 50s when all of these relatively new nation states had you know were enforcing their laws quite strictly it was a much more kind of explicit okay we're going to send this bunch of stuff to this sponsor and it's going to be on the up and up and out in the open as a study collection so that's why for example jericho tomb pottery is distributed like evenly around the earth because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, that was the that was the way it was paid off but everybody was kind of cool with that Right. And everybody in that case, everybody knew where it came from. It had been recorded properly, and and right. But five years later, it was all stuck in the janitor's closet and then well, lost. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, right, right. Um, well, we, I think we also have to mention partage agreements, which were which were all the thing in the 19th century, really, up until World War One, and and this was found after World War One. We're talking about the 1920s, but partage agreements are when um, the uh, host country, in this case, Egypt, uh, comes to an agreement with the excavators, usually a Western nation like England or France, for instance, uh, saying, you get to keep half and we get to keep half. And and if there's anything really good, uh, we get to keep it. Um, and the we could be. Right. And, and the archaeologists always say, oh, no, no, this is a duplicate. Right. No. And there's a lot of <laughs> trickery and right. Oh my paper! It's like um, it's like in Fargo, where where he's got all of those um, uh, the VIN numbers for the cars that he's been he's been selling um, uh, illegally from his father-in-law's lot. Oh, it's all smudged. You know, we can't read it. It's all there. It's all fine. Um, and, and and to get back to to Howard Carter, one of the rationales for him. Uh, mucking around the tombs was because there was an agreement between the government of Egypt, which was nom- not really independent. It was still sort of uh, some kind of some kind of British oversight, but that there was a agreement that if a tomb was um, uh, had been looted, then the material could be split up. But if any intact tombs, everything had to stay in Egypt. Exactly. And that was one of the rationales right. suggested for Carter's, um, you know, uh, despoiling of this tomb. Right. And I thought that that was fascinating. That was like I was looking for a while yesterday to find the partage agreement. And then I came across that. And I, I, I just want to emphasize, JP, exactly what you said, because this this is kind of huge. This is a smoking gun um, that in this case, the partage agreement was, was going to be split. Um, as long as the tomb was looted, because every other tomb had always been found was right. always looted. So <clears throat> it was going to be intact. Then then England got nothing. And um, it's it was, it's also um, worth noting that he dug he dug there for a long time. He came within inches or so, he said. Um, and then he 
he waited for his his wealthy patron lord carnarvon to show up to make the big reveal and that's these are the kinds of shenanigans let shenanigans of a lesser order that right. still that still go on today and i it's think the we, basis of reality tv right but it's also reality. the basis of of you know philanthropically driven archaeology in a lot of places where you're yes uh, i i remember one example but we'll talk about that off the air and <laughs> uh, no but i think so so because i've done some history of archaeology stuff um and uh one thing that I that surprised me is okay. So I'd always known that people thought that that while he was waiting for Carnarvon, or immediately before he even called Carnarvon, he went his sponsor. He uh, entered the tomb partially and went into the chamber and maybe took some stuff, or not into the chamber, into the passageway and maybe took some stuff. That part didn't surprise me. The idea of actually going into the chamber uh, without Egyptian um, government officials there breaking that law and really doing a job on it. That's <laughs> what surprised me. Um, right. the, the extent of this. And also, I think, well, I know it came from the Der Spiegel article that, um, so so Carnarvon, uh, I guess, towards the end of his life, um, wrote, I mean, this Der Spiegel thing concentrates on something that Carnarvon had written, but not published, but that Hoving read and used in his publication in the 1970s. And what what um, Carnarvon said happened is totally different than what Carter said. And I think it might have been his daughter who wrote that, but I'm not oh, sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, but, um, I'm, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't okay. And, and well, a Carnarvon yeah. <laughs> said it, and um, and the idea of entering the tomb, and also then, so we also come back to the arrogance of Carter because you know they didn't do it just by themselves. There were workers around, and they you know discounted um, the apparently correctly the possibility of the workers getting listened to if anyone told on them, um, and no nobody really did tell on them until I was going to say they were correct on that score. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they had. They, I'm, I'm sure the workers had been in various and sundry ways paid off, either yeah. explicitly or implicitly. Right. Possibly by artifacts from the tomb. <laughs> or possibly with something of more yeah. objective and less value. Right. Just regular. Like a couple of dinars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so there's there's all that, but I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> yes, but everybody's doing it. Everybody was doing it. Look how nice... Sophie Schliemann looked. Oh yeah, wearing all that jewelry from from Troy um, that was assembled from all sorts of different <laughs> tombs or or fine spots, right. and she looked great. And uh, you know, it's not not it wasn't a real thing in that sense. And I don't. And you and you and can go to wear it to parties. <laughs> I guess. I, no, I think I read something that she actually. Wore oh. it in public at, at, at in several at several times. Oh, interesting! I'm going to have to. I'm look not sure it. about that. I'll right. yeah. have to look you, for that. Um, it's interesting. You could probably <laughs> waltz wearing something that big and heavy, but maybe not jitterbug. I've always worried about the earrings pulling at her earlobes, but uh, I worry yeah. about a lot of things. But <laughs> the case of Sophie Schliemann's earlobes. I don't think you can hold up Schliemann and Sophie Schliemann as a paragon of 19th century. Archaeology. I mean, you just pointed out that he claimed Schliemann claimed that it well, all was one tomb, and it was really from all over the. But site. maybe that's the point: is that the, there are no paragons 
But, but no, I, no, I guess... they're always in short supply once you start looking at them. That's right. True. Feet of clay. Everybody has feet of clay. Okay. It's, um, but... I, your <laughs> <laughs> I have very, I have very dainty feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I guess, I guess after World War One, uh, maybe my expectations. Uh, your expectations are higher for for the interwar period. Right, right. Maybe that's that's part of it. That's maybe why I was horrified about the extent of the potential robbery here. Um, but well, but uh, <clears throat> you know, not in Carter's defense, but apparently he had been, <coughs> excuse me, fired by the Egyptian Antiquities Service, and he had an he had access to mm-hmm. grind, and he was a a yeah. prickly individual. So. You know, got to hear, got to hear both sides in in that sense. Yeah, not, it's not uh, exculpatory, but <laughs> it's a very uh, there, there's a very human story there somewhere. Right. I don't know. I don't know where. Um, that's well. The, okay. There's a very human story of greed and avarice. <laughs> it's, right. It's, it's yeah, the yeah. quintessentially human story. Right. But what what drives a an, an archaeologist to 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 this length well let's also not forget that the sponsor um the the fifth earl of carnarvon was he he specifically said that he wanted unstamped things so that uh so that you know they couldn't be traced and um that's pretty you know i don't know how by the 1920s if if the carnarvon family still had their wealth they certainly had their estate and for those listeners who don't know or if our listener doesn't know um the uh tv series downton abbey was filmed at highclere castle which is the carnarvon estate so just had to make sure that got said was that a tv show <laughs> yeah uh, what, what's it about I, I didn't get the reaction from either of you that i was hoping <laughs> um, um okay but my question then becomes uh, it's twofold and i'll take my answer off the air um is it the find or is it the um the story of the find that intrigues or are the two inextricably woven together at this point that you can't have tut without carter and you can't have carter without tut and your you know your your interest is not exclusively in the boy king but in the circumstances of his rediscovery and therefore this this tortured individual that people couldn't stand being around for very long um and and vice versa and and is it always that way Mm. I, I'm not quite, I don't quite know if I follow your two part question. Is it, I think, I think are we, it, are we interested in the results or how they got the results? No, I'm interested in the results. I keep, I, I don't, honestly, I, I only care that this was a, that this tomb was, um was, was, un, was not looted, that it was intact. Mm-hmm. I don't really care who excavated it. And, and, and I say that quite honestly, I'm, I only care about the archeology span part of it. Um, well, that's but do, but do normal people think that way? No, well, I certainly can't speak for normal people. <laughs> I so so I I have a as yet unpublished article that kind of deals with this issue. Um, the the fact that popular culture 
think about the mummy movies and think especially about Indiana Jones. It's all set in the past. It's set in excavations of the twenties and thirties because of the glamor and the, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about the locals and, you know, you, all the sort of pre uh, pre um, modern understandings of what Westerners are allowed to do. Uh, you can let go of all that and romanticize. Good times. Right, right. Um, In other so, words, you can be colonial again. It, precisely, precisely. Um, nobody liked the article. That's why it's yet unpublished, because people don't like to think of themselves as uh, as colonial. wanting to be pre-colonial again. <laughs> yeah, it's, but, and that's an, that's an interesting point at a variety of levels, not least of all because there there is a, a subset of people, including in... <laughs> professionals who like to dress up it's like literal cosplay but don't name names <laughs> um and that's that's just very interesting psychologically so is the psychological attraction of the public not a hard-bitten professional like professor dessel right. but of the public Egyptomania of the 1920s yeah is it another kind of egyptomania that um it's the it's the story um, it's the sizzle as well as the steak. Well, of course, Egypt itself promotes Egyptomania more than any other right. entity on earth. So this yeah. museum and the parade of mummies in, in you know, in pickup trucks. <laughs> and, you know, the, the splendor and the incredibleness of the new museum is all under is, is all girding this huge, you know, touristic infrastructure on which the Egyptian <clears throat> state is completely dependent. So, you know, the there's a shifting lens of who's doing the promoting and who's gaining from the promotion, but um, it still goes on, obviously. Yes. And certainly biblical archaeology, you know. Right. Well, um, every every branch of archaeology tries to sell what it has. And if it doesn't have nice things to sell, it sells science as as the story <laughs> and uh that's just how it is and that's how just how it it's always always going to be um because otherwise you know otherwise you're just you're just in a service industry picking up another kind of garbage um <laughs> wow whoa <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> Truth telling—that's yeah. what this podcast is known for. Women didn't have their prune juice this morning. Well, this is why contract archaeology doesn't really get its its due because that's how people think of it. Yeah, but and and on a per capita basis, um, in terms of the number of people who are involved and the number of projects and the number of the amount of money that's involved, that's like. 90% of all archaeology in the world is just, there's going to, we're, we're putting up a building, we're putting in a highway, get this stuff out. Right. Um, take a sample, what have you. And then it has to be analyzed or, and spun for somebody's, for somebody's advantage, if possible. Right. And if not, it's all going to go into the warehouse anyway, somewhere. Right. Right. But do the circumstances of the discovery matter to science, to the final story? So now we know, okay, all the, the story is Well, well is I guess bold. it matters. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I guess it matters in one very important way. And that is we have no idea what the contents of the tomb looked like in its original state. And we had previously thought that we did. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, I think it depends also on how well 
the recording was done, even if there's nefarious activities, uh, you know, did he really record everything except maybe the wooden <laughs> the stuff that, that he sold? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that's an interesting question because I was just thinking um, of um, so so uh, 10, 15 years ago when there was new excavation by Lot Mazar in Jerusalem. And did I find King David's palace that all that stuff? Well, so it was sensationalized, but it was also really well done excavation in terms of methodology. So, you know, does it matter the hoopla that goes on around an excavation as long as the methodology is good? That's my question. Well, there there's a political component that I think right. is a little bit problematic. So I well, don't think the true. methodology can matter in that regard as much as the political situation in which the methodology was applied. Okay. Well, uh... Howard Carter took a lot of pictures. He made a lot of drawings. He tested a lot of artifacts. Uh, we all thought that he did a pretty okay job for a 1920s guy. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> better than some of his contemporaries, probably not as good as others. And we all thought that we had a good idea of, of what was going on. And certainly all of the tut material has been studied and studied and studied over again, including yeah. the space, um, the, the sky iron knife that uh, we talked about. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. And, um, but now do we have to rethink, oh my God, he's a charlatan or he, right. you know, he's, he's some sort of master thief and <clears throat> we, can we, we can't trust anything that he said. Right. Is it, we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater? No, come on. What we does the baby look like? Because we know that X amount of the stuff was in fact found in the tomb. The context, so if you're doing some kind of, you know, mapping <laughs> or contextual understanding of the artifacts, you know, vis-a-vis -vis their position in the tomb, that's been corrupted. But the stuff from the tomb is the stuff from the tomb and stuff from the tomb that was, you know, that was stuff that was stolen. Some of it's been repatriated. Right. So, you know, that I think that's all legitimate areas of study. Um, and as far as our opinion of Carter goes, I think it's just going to be, well, Rachel, and you're, you're the person who, who writes about this more than any of us, you know, it's just going to be another lens into the colonial enterprises in which there's going to be an asterisk like, next to his name. Yeah, I guess so. Right. That's a good, yeah, just like, uh, you know, just like Barry Bonds, Barry Bonds. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it's interesting. It wasn't just the workers who were clearly paid off to be quiet. You know, the local workers, the people who were going to discount because they're Egyptian, whatever. But uh, it was also people on his own team. It was a big team. Harry Burton right. took the pictures, this guy, Alfred Lucas, who was a conservator on the team. He's the one who didn't say anything until 1947, apparently. And he's the one who said that Carter had broken open the right. door. Um, right. Um, and Alan Gardner, who we all know because we were still reading books sure. authored by a a Alan Gardner when we were in graduate school. Absolutely. He uh, wrote about, you know, wrote a pointed letter um, about it, but he didn't name names. Right. He didn't name names. He he exactly. He he asked somebody to to verify whether a particular amulet 
actually had come from the tomb, even though Carter had assured him it hadn't come from the tomb. Um, and he found out indeed it had come from the tomb, but he didn't name names. Did you say so, amulet? I did. <laughs> like yes, like Nanuet? Like <laughs> <laughs> You're disputing my pronunciation. No, again. I'm just I'm just wondering. But um so maybe we should maybe it's going to to may, maybe give us a little pause uh, regarding Alan Gardner. Sir Alan Gardner. Mm, mm. <laughs> How deep does this conspiracy go? Well, no, it's why didn't he mention names? Right. He was a prominent, you know, a philologist, et cetera. You know, why not mention names? But right. well, and this is the sticky wicket of of archaeological ethics. Right. Well, it also yeah. is a class issue, I would argue. Well, that's all interesting. I mean, I keep wondering about Carter's relationship with with Gardner, you know, prior to the finding of the tomb. Why mm. is Carter giving him uh, a, a piece of uh, an artifact <laughs> from the tomb to begin with? As well, a, right. Yeah. Like, is he sucking up to him and why? Right. That's a, yeah, that's a good observation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then why is Gardner checking up on him by going to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo to to verify if it was or wasn't from the tomb? Like, Gardner we want to bring up the the uh, oh, now I forget the name of it. Uh the whole Mellard thing, the Dorak treasure. Oh God! Hmm. Yeah, well, uh, but that's sort of that, that's sort of the the converse example, of, right? But it's setting up Mellard to be the Carter he, of mm. the day. Well, but Mellard always claimed that he was set up. No, that's what I, I and that's that why he I was said set that up. he was the patsy. Right. That's right. why I said he was set up. I'm yeah. saying that he that that somebody was sort of acknowledging oh yeah we can set him up as you know one of these dirty archaeologists who's you know you know stealing antiquities and selling them um and that's a believable thing uh right. and and that's what carter actually was actually doing. did right um and that's how mellert got set up uh regarding this this dorak treasure which I will say, I, I studied with Ian Todd as an undergrad, and Todd always said that Mellert, um, you know, always told this, the basic story was that, you know, he was shown this stuff on a train. Right. He sketched it and um, had nothing else to do with it. Right. Well, it's a, it's an interesting uh, observation that by the, um, the Dorak was what 1958, I think. I want to say something like that. Yeah, um, it wasn't. It wasn't the 60s. Yeah, I don't think it was in the. 60s. But the whole thing, it it, it was supposedly happened around 58, and then the, it broke in sixty. The is in the 60s. Nineteen. Oh, that late? I thought 1960 or something. But okay, something. Well, yeah. But 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 certainly by that time, um, sensibilities had changed around the region and. And in all the countries of almost all, not all, many of the countries of the region, Turkey, Egypt, and Iraq kind of at the forefront, they became very possessive. And Greece. And, and Greece mm -hmm. uh, of, their, of their antiquities, you know, right, rightfully so. I'm not, you know, it's not a, but it, it and it's part of a kind of nationalist um, yeah. series of nationalist phenomena in those in those places yeah and the accusation 
the accusation that, oh, this guy was stealing or involved with fencing um, was became very convenient and plausible, particularly right. and as I'm, and I'm saying the plausibility was because of this sort of, you know, reputation that archaeologists kind of had right. and certainly Carter is emblematic of. Right. Right. And for Carter's for earlier, repeated shenanigans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Every time we say shenanigans, everyone should take a drink. Right. Um, but let's also so okay, I want to come back to some basics here that that I I think anyway, that what is shocking to me is the extent, not that it was done, because, yes, as you say, the shenanigans uh, have gone on. It's a good point. It's like he went in there with a forklift. Yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to like everybody has known or or, or what well, it has been known that things from Tut's tomb were distributed. So there was no secret. And we said this a little bit before, but not with so many of the specifics. There's no secret that Carter and Carnarvon um, gave um, gave something from the tomb to um, King Fuad I of, of Egypt and uh, gave also something to, or a few things, maybe one thing, to Edward Harkness, um, a trustee of the Metropolitan Museum. So he's giving stuff away. And all these museums, the Brooklyn Museum, the Cleveland Museum, someplace in Germany, all, and there are others, all have in their collections, uh, some repatriated, some not, things that came from the tomb. So so his estate um, after his death, you know, stuff went places. And um, that's not, that's never been news. Right. Not even in 2004. And that was a very common 19th century thing. Exactly. And it was not exactly secret. You give something to the king of Egypt, it's not a secret. You give something to the trustee of a museum, it's not mm -hmm. a secret. So, so, you know, again, to me, it's the extent and the hubris of, of just... Yeah. Well, we're always pushing out the boundaries of hubris. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that that seemed to really. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm pondering I'm pondering that thought. Um. <clears throat> well, does it does it is it it does it matter? Humana humana humana. Uh, it would have been nice to have a full intact tomb, but it, but it wasn't. Well, we had a full intact tomb, but it would have been nice if Carter hadn't despoiled it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does it matter? Um, yeah, it would have been nice if he hadn't. <laughs> does it change things? Does it change the field of archaeology as we know it today? No. Not, no. not so much. No. No, we live in existentially wrought an existentially fraught world exactly archaeology is not changing anything about the world exactly there are much bigger things at work right 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 but archaeology in this in this sense has sort of exempted itself or tried to exempt itself from certain kinds of capitalist processes can't you can't <laughs> buy and sell this stuff um uh, so so blatantly anymore can't can't export this stuff and buy the boatload anymore right. well, legally i mean 
Yep. We are sort of tiptoeing around the edge of the huge topic of archaeology and nationalism. And I think we probably should stop before we fall <laughs> in. Right. And also, also repatriation. Yeah. Send it all back. Yeah. So um, let's 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 not go there. Okay, final thoughts then. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. <laughs> Howard, <laughs> we hardly knew ye. Yeah, just about the scale of it. That's my all. man. <laughs> so disappointing. So disappointing. <laughs> all right, <laughs> Professor Hallett. Any final? Uh, the scale, the shocking nature of the scale. Um, that's... If you. That's sort of a, you know, if you're going to steal, keep it on the, keep it on the manageable small side. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's all. Wait, are, shouldn't we admire him? He went like went almost the full Danny Ocean here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good point. Good point. I don't know. Do we have to rethink some of our admiration for thievery? Do you have a final <laughs> thought or is that your final thought? I'm rethinking. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Okay, I think that's I think that's, that's my final thought. Yeah. Very good. Well, that's an episode that has me looking over my shoulder rather nervously. So we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Dumont Television Network, presenting The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb tonight at 8. To get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at This Week in the Ancient Near East, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.